Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics. From what kind of a perspective? From an authentically Catholic perspective. Today we're trying something new. You'll notice that all three co-hosts are in studio together, and we're going to have multiple guests with us by tape recording who were participants in the 46th anniversary of an outdoor event you may have heard of. It's our first ever true man-on-the-street interviews and even a few women-on-the-street interviews. But it's radio, so let's start with some audio. And Eddie, final question. What difference do you think this makes, this march that we're doing today that you've done now for seven times? I mean, certainly just giving this witness where, you know, the media always says, the mainstream news media always says thousands of people. Well, it's not technically untrue, but the fact that it's actually not just tens, but hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, just doing a quick count here today, it's 150 abreast and about 60 people from pole to pole, and there's and there are, are dozens and dozens of poles. So we're looking at like at least 300,000 here today. That's incredible. And he was talking about an outdoor event, which you know better as the... March for Life. The March for Life. But it would be tough to know much about it if you watched mainstream media to learn about it. (laughs) Exactly. I think they deploy an outstanding number of reporters to block this information from even getting out. So I did a little experiment, and I hate to call them by name, but I will. (laughs) So I, I looked at the Fox News website, the CNN website, MSNBC's website, and I think it was NBC's news website looking and then I couldn't see anything so I just typed in the search March for Life nothing nada not a thing wow right yeah. because you know one thing they say is like the day of the march Washington Post President Trump and Vice President Pence surprised thousands of protesters <laughs> well as GK Chesterton said it's lying by telling the truth <laughs> yeah the, by by two factors of 10 <laughs> oh yeah a, a couple log powers as those of us who took algebra but well, I could be wrong, but it felt like this year that there was even less reporting. I mean, in years past, it felt like there was mediocre reporting, under-reporting. But this year, it seemed to be essentially, other than, you know, the Catholic high school student sort of thing, Right. there appeared to be no reporting at all. Which is very sad. And even that comes out making us look good because... Turns out they lied about it. They lied about it. <laughs> right. That's a surprise. Uh, it, it's so sad. But Eddie pointed out something. He was talking about how many people were standing there when all of the uh, platform people were speaking on the mall from noon to one o'clock. I couldn't even get near anything to hear or see anything. I've never been in such a sea of people in my life. Well, and you, you think about all the marches. I mean, there's various numbers of marches and gatherings in the nation's capital. This has got to be the largest, if not one of the largest? It's definitely the largest annual one that goes on there. And if you watched online, you can see a 60-second video, you know, fast forward of the entire march, everyone coming through. And if you just stop it when, you know, a new group enters the frame and then keep checking it, I mean, some people have said 300,000, others have said 600,000. It was a massive humanity. We were standing on the side street for an hour after the march started till we could even start to move. And then there were over 100,000 behind us. Tom, yeah. what did you get a sense, or could you get a sense, of maybe the average age of the marchers? Oh, 20s. Really? Oh, yeah. Tons of kids, tons of students. I mean, we were the old fogies there. <laughs> but it was great. I mean, I marched in my white coat with some other physicians in their white coats, which, which drew a lot of attention during the march. But, you know, you would think, uh, at least I would think, that hundreds of thousands of people of that age group coming out into a cold January thing, that would capture some attention. You know, that's that takes a lot of motivation. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of money to go to Washington, D.C. And yet you had all of these high school and college students out there marching. That's remarkable. It is. And we'll get into, uh, you know, how far some of them came later on. But one word before we go on to our next clip is that <clears throat> it said in the Washington Post article that there were thousands of protesters. To be quite honest, I don't know that I met a protester. It was a celebration of life. I mean, all the chants were not anti-anything. They were pro-life, pro-child, pro-mother, pro-God, pro-everything good that we could think of. It was 
it was a beautiful sight. It was like a big homecoming. Like you could go up and talk to anybody there and feel welcomed. Well, and, you know, even just kind of touching on the, the way the media is reporting it, every single day if you turn on the news, politics dominates the news. And, I mean, to have the vice president of the United States last year and this year yes, show up live and then the president make a address specifically for this event if if this was the Humane Society and they were talking <laughs> about spaying and neutering your pets, of course that the president's comments would have made the news. And you know, I've I've heard a lot of pro-life people kind of kind of throw some shade, if you will, take a millennial term, kind of look down <laughs> on the current administration about lack of a pro-life stance. However, I mean, I think after the State of the Union address, especially following the March for Life so closely. I have never in my lifetime heard a president speak so clearly and really, instead of a central approach, taking a far-right pro-life approach about the issue of abortion. So I was very excited to see that Pence came out, and I'm excited that we have a pro-life president in the White House. Andrea, can we have the next clip, please? This is? Caroline Swalina, yours truly. (laughs) And Caroline, why are you here today? I'm here to support the pro-life movement. Uh, I'm taking time out of my classes and my studies as sacrifice um, to support all the women that are maybe scared uh, to have their babies, that maybe they have the strength to persevere. Do you think that what everyone's doing here today is making any kind of difference? I think uh, the best form of change is core ad core, liquidor, heart to heart. Ooh, a little Yes, a little Latin there. And um, really people are just getting out here, being positive, and it's these small moments of heart-to-heart that makes the, the largest change. So, yes. So, Carolyn Swalina pulling Latin out of her hat. Cora ad cor loquitur's heart speaks to heart. That was the motto of soon-to-be St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. And in fact, the bishop, who is the Episcopal advisor of the Catholic Medical Association, uh, James Conley, has that as his own Episcopal motto in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, she talked about how heart-to-heart is important one-on-one. And so I thought I'd bring up, and we would discuss, some key conversions that have actually happened. Like, one of the biggest abortionists of the late 20th century and one of the co-founders of the National Abortion Rights Action League was Bernard Nathanson. He uh, had a change of heart in 1980 after... um, tens of thousands of abortions, and became a pro-life advocate till he died in 2011. But two other important conversions that happened, and they may not have really been conversions, but they were two women who were used. Yeah, it was a manipulation, I think, by the people in favor of abortion. Yeah, for so Roe v. Wade, Roe was actually Norma McCorvey, and in Doe versus Bolton, Doe was actually Sandra Kano, women who both, until their deaths, worked in the pro-life movement. And now uh, we're in a period of time, when you will hear this, when a new movie is coming out called Unplanned. It's about the conversion story of Abby Johnson, who I got to meet five years ago when she came to Fort Wayne for our local March to Life. She was a former Planned Parenthood Clinic director and Planned Parenthood Employee of the Year. Wow. And she was assisting with an abortion in Texas when it just struck her what was happening when she saw an ultrasound-guided abortion. And, and I think she gives powerful testimony to the other sinister, very sinister side of the Planned Parenthood sort of business pyramid and that how it is really all about abortions. Yes. Getting young women to establish relationships uh, and to feel as though Planned Parenthood is the place to go when they have birth control needs, when they have other kinds of gynecologic needs, so that when they need their abortion... That'll They'll be come partner. back. But, yeah. Chris, it's, it's only 3% of their services. <laughs> or so they say. But what this shows is what Caroline was talking about with the heart-to-heart. In the movie Unplanned, it talks about Abby's conversion didn't come from anybody shouting. It came from, I believe, 40 Days for Life people sitting down and befriending her over a long period of time. Wow. And that's, that is what it, what it comes down to, especially the, the medical student put it so well. But, you know— when you meet someone who disagrees with you in an aggressive manner, there's really no common ground. I mean, you already are set up in places of disagreement. If you if you can't, so to speak, reach across the aisle and find something in common and realize that, you know, maybe maybe the pro-life people who take time out of their day 
to come and sit on the sidewalk and pray, you know, maybe there is something to this. You know, one of our one of my favorite uh, discussions we've had on the air has been our clarity and charity sort oh, of yes, discussion. Oh, yes, with the Pete Colosi. Yeah, the idea of how can you listen in an engaged way so that you're you're not automatically thinking about your response and into a pithy one-upsmanship, but to actually hear the other person's side and try hard to empathize with them and understand them and then share your ideas. We need much more of that. Amen. And, you know, Abby Johnson and your work with former clinic workers, so far 430 former abortion workers have left through the efforts of her group called And Then There Were None. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, the latest um, state-level abortion data shows that in 1996, in the country, there were 1.36 million reported abortions. By 2008, there were 1.21 million. And as of 2017, 882,000. It's going down every year. Now, not to sound at all cynical, um, but we have to keep in mind whenever we're reading those statistics that it's a mess going from state to state. And so many of the abortions that are taking place in offices with RU486 don't get reported. They don't. Because the states don't require, and it varies by state, don't require something like that that doesn't happen in a surgery center right. to be reported as a procedure. So not to be too negative, but I think we, we have to always keep that little asterisk in mind. There. Well, and that's one of the biggest things for the pro-life movement is being able to track those those abortions and track complications thereof. We actually found in a, in a recent online kind of search, there's about 90 websites where you can order that online, a do-it-yourself home abortion kit. And so there's no way to keep track of those numbers, but it's definitely encouraging that they are going down every year. And I think that speaks to the change of heart. Of yes. People. Well, let's uh, ask our trivia question before we take a quick break. And the trivia question deals with two women I just spoke about, um, Norma McCorvey and Sandra Kano. In other words, uh, the plaintiffs even if they were unwilling plaintiffs, in Roe v. Wade and Doe Doe versus Bolton. The question is this. What was the result of each of their two pregnancies (laughs) that were the cause of these lawsuits being brought? In other words, which of them ended in abortion? Did both of them? Did neither of them? Did Norma McCorvey's? Or did Sandra Kano's? In the fourth quarter, we'll answer this question, but we'll be back with some more audio clips after the break. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern with the CMA Doctor Doctor podcast. Who's holding one of the sides sides of the CMA banner? Maria Alvarez Bolway, MD. And where are you from? New Jersey. New Jersey. So how long did it take you to get here today? Uh, Four hours, four and a half hours, actually. And why do you come to the March for Life? To march for those who cannot speak, for those who are being killed, for those who have no voice. That's a beautiful reason. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, five or six years. Is this your first time holding the sign? Yes. Do special graces come with that? Yes. <laughs> Such as? Blessings from above, I hope. Well, thank you very much, and God bless you. You know, I think it's just beautiful when you see doctors who are usually running a clinic and telling other people what to do, doing something as mundane as holding one side of a a large sign marching down Constitution Avenue. And most of us, I think, would agree, physicians, we tend not to be very good at getting involved in causes. Um, And she is just the opposite of that. She traveled, left her office went out into the cold and carried a banner and even found time to talk to you, Tom. So While she was walking. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I talked to some students that were there, and they were talking about the sort of the sense of fellowship um, that this brings to mind. And, and they were talking about marching literally arm in arm with, with Presbyterians, with Baptists, with all kinds of Protestants. There was really no—this uh, is not a Catholic event. And, and I think maybe in the early years it felt much more like a Catholic event. But we are lockstep, quite literally, with our uh, many, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters on the need to protect life. And that's got to be one of the most encouraging takeaways, don't you think? I think so. And one of the uh, big speakers on the platform was Ben Shapiro, who is um, a Jew. And uh, <laughs> I heard he just spoke at the Legatus Summit a couple of weeks ago, and the audience loved him. And he quips back, gosh, I might be your second favorite Jew. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It is. Can we have that next uh, clip, please? 
This is what it sounds like when the March for Life is finally moving. And I have a couple of nurses here with me, including a nurse from Omaha. This is? Karen Lange. And Karen, why are you at the March for Life all the way from Omaha? Um, I had the time, and I want to um, uh, reparate for all the abortions and, and to um, uh, protect, protect the, um, the unborn. Is this your first March for Life? No, this is probably my fifth or sixth. Wow, do you drive out here or fly? We uh, take a bus caravan out. How many hours does that take? That's about 22 hours. You're a good woman. What would you like everybody to know about the March for Life who's never been to one? It's a wonderful way to experience all the prayer and to be together so that you know that we are not alone. Amen to that. 22 hours on a bus. <laughs> I just can't imagine, especially as an older adult. As a teenager, yeah. Well, I think it, it just speaks to how many people really want their voice to be heard. And that's that's the biggest testament, I think, to the, the March for Life is just the sheer number of people. You know, most of these people have jobs. There are some protests that go on, and these people are professional protesters. That's not the March for Life. <laughs> no. These are people who said it's important to show up for this because this is an injustice, you know. Well, I think we could we could easily look to data that would support that most Americans are not in favor of some of the heinous things that have been uh, discussed in, in, on the abortion side, particularly with the Virginia and the New York statutes of late. And we've talked about that on this show. Average Americans taking care of their children and going to work every day are not in favor of the wholesale slaughter of babies. Yet we're led to believe that that, that, is, the, uh, that is the normal position. But it, it just isn't. And I think at the march, when you see all of these normal people holding their signs, you realize that we're very, very alike, aren't we? Oh, yes, we are. And it's just beautiful seeing all the young people. In fact, uh, whoever was the previous president of NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League, or um, they have a new name now. But anyway, she said she had to resign in favor of a younger person because she watched video of the March for Life or she was at it. And she just said, they're so young and there are so many of them. Well, and when you think of it, too, so many people, I feel like, when abortion was first becoming legalized in the 70s and the 80s, when it was unfortunately very popular, you know, we didn't have things like ultrasound. To, it was more mm -hmm. of a philosophical opinion for people, and a lot of times people made these philosophical decisions in times of great stress. Now, you take your average millennial, if you will, and you show them an ultrasound— this is not rocket science. They're like, yeah, <laughs> definitely a baby, you know. So, I mean, to, to some extent, I think we frequently lament the younger generation as to every generation in the past. Everyone does that. But this is one place where, you know, you don't need to have a lot of hard and fast rules or you don't have to know necessary logic reason. You can get this over text even. But if you look at a baby on an ultrasound, there's there's no question about what's going on here. Yeah, it's my favorite living author, philosopher Peter Crave says, the world would be a lot different if wombs had windows. <laughs> That's the truth. And they do with ultrasound, thank goodness. The, uh, amen. So, let's hear from a student. And who did we just meet but the newest president of the Catholic Medical Association, medical student section, Francesca? Ursua. Francesca, why are you here today? Um, I'm here to support the pro-life cause, sir. And you're studying on a military scholarship. I believe you're in the Air Force? Um, yes, sir. I'm at the Uniform Service University, so not the scholarship program, but similar. Yes, you just owe the rest of your life. But none of your children, future children. So what year are you in school? I'm a third year, sir. What, what do you think is uh, the effect of this particular event? The effect of this event? Um, I think that... With everything shut down and all that people see is us marching very, you know, um, peacefully and just with our signs, I think that we're really showing people that we're here to support a cause um, in a way that is open to everyone and not against people or not fighting people. That's beautiful. Francesca, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. 
She brought up the fact that it's a peaceful march. Yeah, Tom, how how many looters did you see at this protest? <laughs> Besides myself, no, they're, it's just peaceful. I mean, it's not like these other things you hear happening, like like Republican members of Congress or members of the uh, the White House um, cabinet being attacked at restaurants or at their homes. No, nothing like that was going on. In fact, I didn't even see any counter protesters. You know, wow. any any pro choice or. It's funny. We have to people. think that uh, Saint John Paul has to be sitting there just with that beautiful smile that he had. Yes, uh, so well photographed. But because I, I would think it feels like that March for Life uh, and World Youth Day. Th- these are almost one and the same. I mean, these are the youngest people. Yes that are standing up and saying, we're going to be heard, we know what's right, and we're not afraid to say what's right. And they do it in a beautiful, peaceful, and loving way. And that really embodies everything I think that he was about. I mean, that's the future of the faith. And we can be happy about that. And these young medical students that I'm meeting more and more, they're not afraid. They, they took John Paul to heart. Be not afraid. They're not. They want to be the real deal, full boat, 100% Catholic in all areas of their life. Just like Francesca, who's just this five foot nothing dynamo, uh, full of energy, enthusiasm, ideas. Uh, and she says, sir, so much. She's just so darn respectful. I think that's <laughs> got to be in part of the training there. I think that the, the military, and I was in the military, so I'm just like, oh, my, no, I'm not in uniform even. Wow. <laughs> no, she's just incredibly well-formed young woman. So our next uh, our next participant's going to be not a student, but an OBGYN. Is that right? Yes, and here she is. And we just met another surprise guest for our show from Biloxi, Mississippi. And you are? Michelle Pichota. And she practices? OBGYN. And does wonderful work down there, such as? Well, I've been recently named the director of the pro-life ministries for the Diocese of Biloxi. And I'm forming a pro-life mission in our diocese. It's never been standardized before. so we're trying to That is fantastic in the Deep South. How many times have you been to this March for Life? This is my fifth. Fifth, what, what is the importance of this to you? It is inspirational to me. It gives me hope because I see so many youth here. Um, it also makes me feel really proud of being Catholic because in this world, sometimes it just you forget there's this many of us out there. Amen to that. And do you think this makes a difference to the world, what we're doing? Yes, I think it does. I think it's easier for people to see that um, they're not alone and that there's an awful large number and there's quite a variety of people who support pro-life mission and the mission of pro-life work and people forget that. You know, Michelle brought up the fact that she's encouraged by so many youth and as a segue from the last interview, I discovered online that Students for Life of America now has 1,100 active groups on middle school, high school and college campuses around the country with chapters in all 50 states. Yeah, it's remarkable. And, you know, she's a fellow ob guy like you, Chris. Uh, how do her comments resonate with you? Yeah, first of all, I loved her accent because <laughs> uh, I lived many, many years in the South, and she sounds like all of my relatives. So <laughs> <laughs> I respect that and miss that. That's very nice. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about in the show before, OBGYN is a bizarre specialty because it has, it has become such that um, those in favor of abortion have sort of kidnapped women's health. And to be pro-woman, you have to be pro-abortion. And uh, it, it's very, very difficult for doctors like Michelle and like me and like other people in this specialty who, you know, we've dedicated our careers to We would call ourselves pro-woman. But uh, now that's got a new definition. And if you're not pro-abortion, if you're in any way in favor of not allowing babies to be killed, then you're anti-woman. Well, and you you bring up a good point, Tom, too, with the Students for Life. I think so much of this has to do with the training. You know, even here in Indiana where we record the show, uh, Indiana University, their OB-GYN program is an opt-out program for abortions. So you are expected to perform abortions as part of your residency training. What does it say when most of the doctors that we graduate to do OB-GYN in Indiana have blood on their hands already? 
we know that many OB-GYNs are pro-life, even though some are not very vocal about it. But when you're forcing this on them during training, I think it, it really perturbs their thought process, even if they were maybe against this before you got to get blood on your hands to be one of us. And so I think it's so important to focus on the training aspect and really support people to stand out against that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Whether it's abortion or whether it's contraception and abortion causing methods of contraception, the peer pressure is so phenomenal on these young learners um, that anything we can do to help them have the the ability to stand up and and stand out and say that this is wrong, we're not going to do it. And it's sure, when you listen to these voices, it sure is inspiring. And what you're saying, Andrew, is that, you know, at IU Medical Center, they're putting out people for our state, for our country, who are at complete odds with what we believe. Some recent data I found is that uh, 79% of Americans believe that abortion should be illegal after the first trimester. Yeah, that's out of step with practice for sure. Oh, yeah, and only 13% believe it should be even legal in the third trimester at, at any point. And only 16% believe it should be legal through you know all nine months of pregnancy. That's, that's just crazy. Why put out doctors who are going to be so out of step with their future patients? Yeah, it's, it's incredible, and it's, I think it is an orchestrated attack on the morality of our country where they are intentionally trying to take the people quote-unquote, empower the physicians who are caring for these patients and change their opinion. So even though the patients and the doctors don't have the same opinion, patients are a lot of times, I, I believe, coerced into to making decisions they would not otherwise. And, you know, today it's the March for Life, which is synonymous with abortion. But really, based on a lot of the guests we've had on this show, the March for Life has to include physician-assisted suicide and so-called voluntary euthanasia and yes. the organ donation Much issues more. that we've talked about. I mean, the, th the threat to life, unfortunately, uh, doesn't stop if we win the abortion battle. Uh, the, those forces of darkness that are pushing the culture of death are just getting bolder and bolder. Yes, so we always have to be fighting for life. You know, a study here put up by NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League, said that 51%, so just over half of pro-life voters under 30 consider a candidate's stance on abortion very important. But guess what percentage of pro-abortion voters under 30 consider that important to them? I'm going to guess 80-something? Only a quarter, 26%. Oh, wow. That's so only half as many millennials who are voting consider uh, a pro-abortion stance important to them. So but people half who, of pro-life do. People who vote the pro-lifers care about the issue. The people in favor of abortion do not care as much as other issues. At least by that statistic. By looking that way. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor. Here we are at the March for Life. Dr. Festus Krebs from Kansas City just heard a good soundbite. What was it, Dr. Krebs? Well, we passed the guy who was looking at us and said, Wow, Doctors for Life, what an idea. <laughs> Who'd have thought Doctors for Life and more will come. So why, why was it such a big deal for this guy to see some of us in white coats marching? Because we're supposed to be um, sort of these robots, I think, that are apolitical, that we are whatever the, the culture of the moment is. So in this case, we would be, it wouldn't be appropriate for a doctor to say that I'm pro-life or I'm anti-physician-assisted you know, suicide because we're supposed to be exactly what the culture says that we are. You know, a friend of mine who was at the march and who's been on our show, Dr. Martin Bednar, is a neurosurgeon, MD, PhD, and he writes many letters to the editor where he lives in the Northeast, in Rhode Island, in, um, in New York, and they, whenever they publish his letter, they never, ever put MD, PhD, neurosurgeon, oh, even wow. though he signs it that way. What does that say? Well, you know, I, I think part of it in, in my interaction with what we would call academic medicine, the AMA, and even in, in Indiana, Indiana State Medical Association, many of the people at the top of the political medical, you know, organizations, 
they don't, they don't actually practice anymore. They're, they're what we would call academic doctors. They don't necessarily see patients maybe right. five a week. And they are really out of touch with everybody else. They sure don't represent my views. And the trouble is, is those are the people that are held up on pedestals. They're the ones who get to be surgeon general. And they're the ones who are writing all of these things that are supposed to be, this is what the doctors say. But in reality, it's what a minority of the doctors say and probably doctors that don't agree with you. That's a great well point. We should have yes. him on our show, that Mulally guy. He's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can get him. I'll have my people talk to his people. And, well, I'm, and I'm see sure what people we can are do. just dying to know the answer, as usual, to the medical trivia question. Oh, this was a good one, too. But they're going to have to wait until the, the last segment of the show. So, so sorry. So there. <laughs> so there. <laughs> no. Keep, keep listening. <laughs> keep listening. Yes, we are doing this new triple play thing with all three of us here new. We'll get better. But uh, searching for data, another great data point that I found in my search online is that as of 2012, for the first time, half of Americans identified as pro-life, while those identifying as pro-choice hit a record low of 41%. So self-identity seems to be grow- going up Uh, for those of us in the pro-life. And it says that since 1990, uh, that young people's support for unlimited abortion has dropped 12 points. So again, there are more things happening culturally, maybe slowly, but but still happening. And you know, something that I was taught is that when when evil comes out of the shadows into broad daylight is usually when it's afraid that it's going to lose its hold. Mm. I don't know if you've heard that or experienced it, but if that is true, um, I think this bodes well for our future. Well, that would explain some of what we're seeing, you know, whether it's the New York statute or, or physician-assisted suicide, that we're seeing evil push and push hard because opinions and hearts are changing. Well, and even this year, the Supreme Court is interviewing or entertaining the idea of our bill in Indiana, House Bill 1337 from two years ago, which said it's illegal, and this passed in Indiana, it's illegal to abort a baby because they're disabled or because of the gender of the baby. So for the first time ever, we have civil rights and protected health classes such as disabled people and gender pitted against the so-called right of privacy that is somehow magically the penumbra of that allows <laughs> for abortion. And the Supreme Court, I think, is going to hear this bill, this this lawsuit that the ACLU and Planned Parenthood filed against us. And if that is upheld, our law, that is going to take a huge bite out of abortions across the country and really a huge dent out of Roe v. Wade. We know in Iceland, they were bragging about how there's no Down syndrome because they aborted all those babies. This is going to specifically protect those babies, where yes. even in America, I think eight or nine out of ten are aborted, unfortunately. Yeah, so, 90% worldwide, most statistics will, will suggest. Yes. But it's interesting. We're doing so well in Indiana in that regard. And then you look at the, at the New York statute that specifically depersonalizes um, the child in the womb. So whereas here... If there is a, a murder or, uh, or some heinous crime against a pregnant woman, the perpetrator may be charged with two murders. Yes. That specifically can happen in the state of New York. And that already came up since the law was passed. Yeah, it's remarkable. There's New York for you. It has already come up? <laughs> yep, and they're charging the, the pregnant lady, unfortunately, was, was murdered, and uh, they're charging the perpetrator with one murder instead of two, which would be commonplace in many other states. Maybe Amazon wanted to put their headquarters in a place that was safer for babies. It'd be good for workforce <laughs> development. <laughs> that's that's right. Sure. And that's why they pulled out, although there's other nefarious things going on there, which I am unaware of as a lowly physician. And on that note, we'll leave the third shortened quarter behind and come back to the fourth quarter on Dr. Doctor for the answer to the trivia question. Coming back to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, this is Dr. Doctor, and we have the answer to the long-awaited trivia question, especially tailored to the March for Life. You bet. So what were the result of the two pregnancies that led to the two cases, infamous cases, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton? Well, Roe v. Wade, um, the Roe was Norma McCorvey. She had a daughter born in June of 1970. That daughter immediately given up for adoption. And Norma never met that daughter, never found out where she went or what happened to her. But she gave birth, and that daughter presumably is still alive today. 
Second case, Dovey Bolton, Sandra Kano was Doe. Her daughter, Melissa, was born November 6, 1970, and also immediately placed for adoption. But she was reunited with Melissa at the age of 19 in the state of Georgia and apparently kept in touch until Sandra Kano's death. So the two pregnancies that led to these cases, both mothers gave birth, both gave those babies a chance for life with another family through adoption. Did, did did you two know about that before? I had I had heard that before, and I thought it was so ironic because it's Doe v. Wade is or Roe v. Wade <laughs> rather mixing them up here it has always been held up as such a testament to the Constitution has shown she has a right to do this, but in reality, that's not what she decided to do. No, not at all. Yeah, and the fact that they both ended up working for the other side, so to speak, and the pro life side is is just a beautiful twist to the story. And when you read about the, the Doe v. Bolton case, Sandra Kano was completely used. She went in because she was uh, in an abusive marriage. She was expecting her fourth child. She felt hopeless, and she was just looking for support. And they used her signature through this pro bono law uh, company or lawyer uh, to get her onto this case, not because they were going to help her with her situation. And when she found that out later, she was livid. And she never appeared in any of the trial proceedings. You know, it's interesting. We, we tend, all of us do, to hang out with people that we agree with, uh, although it can be very fun and enlightening to spend some time with people you disagree with, if you can do it in a civil, in a civil way. But it, it's just hard. It's hard for me to imagine why anybody would disagree with us on most things, but particularly uh, on, on this one of abortion. And I think there's a lot of intelligent, good people who just haven't started, they haven't taken the time to ask the question, is this a person that we're destroying with abortion? And then I, I think about this because I posted something about um, three of my kids who were at the march. I posted it on our Facebook page, and I was immediately attacked with such vehement sort of, you know, um, j- just anger that you could feel it coming across the Internet. And I was deleting the angry post, and I couldn't delete them fast enough. They were coming in so quickly. And the post ended up getting about 25,000 views. Uh, and a few of them I stopped deleting, and I started responding to. And most of the responses that came at me were about, how dare you say a woman doesn't have a choice to do with her body what she wishes? And then if I could, I would tie back and say, I agree, she should be able to do with her body what she wishes, but she can't kill somebody else when she wants to. And it always came back to a woman's autonomy. Everything, as we've talked about in the suicide uh, discussions before, it was this sort of worshiping at the altar of personal autonomy. And, and I replied to one of them, you know, I, I want my autonomy as well. But if my autonomy says I'd like to go over and shoot my neighbor, <laughs> I'm not allowed to do that. My autonomy has limits. Well, and I think I think the, the word autonomy especially highlights the problem. That baby has no autonomy. The baby cannot speak for itself, very akin to Holocaust victims. Can't run away, can't protect itself. Very akin to people in slavery. If you remove the idea of human dignity, that we all are worthy of respect and we all have infinite value because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and you put in the poor replacement of autonomy, it's only those who have money to speak, are able to speak, who can read and write. Anybody who's in a position that is not in the majority are going to be silenced. And these poor babies are the perfect example. And our autonomy, while noble, has limits uh, to the degree to which that it affects others' autonomy. Uh, We have free speech, but we can't run into a theater and scream fire. Our free speech has limits. But all of the comments that came back to me, for the most part, uh, that were so angry, it was all about how dare I try to limit a woman's autonomy. And that's a completely different mindset. They are not thinking about the child in any in any way um, whatsoever. No, but now with the you know abuse crisis in the church, you know what would we say to a a priest who said, "How dare you limit my autonomy to reach out to these you know young people in the way that I want to?" Well, of course we want to limit that autonomy. Yeah, in a culture okay. of laws. By definition, we limit people's autonomy. Well, and that's yes. the thing, too, is autonomy is not a virtue, you know. 
honesty, that's a virtue, <laughs> charity, temperance, prudence. There's a lot of real virtues. Autonomy is not a virtue. It's not actually a good in and of itself. No. It speaks to a good. It speaks to treating people with respect. But there are definitely limits there has to be on autonomy, and that's the definition of any kind of law that is ever made. Let's go to a young medical student who will help us with science. So we have a first-year medical student here from Georgetown at Jesuit School, and you are? Tom Sakura. So why are you at this march? Well, I've been coming to this for, for a while, and I think recently learning about human embryology has kind of reinforced you know, my beliefs as a Catholic. Seeing just the complexity of the human embryo and development, it's pretty obvious that from the moment of conception that the human is alive, and it's human, so I think fundamentally that makes it a person, and we have to protect that. And we're in a unique position as physicians to understand the science and advocate for that. You know, it's so funny that most medical students would not describe themselves as pro-life, yet they have the same embryology course. What's going on? I think a lot of things. You know, I think culturally a lot of people go into it. A lot of the language that the pro-choice movement likes to use, I think, is, has influenced their thinking. You know, I think many of them would see it as like, yeah, you know, the embryo is alive, but... It's not viable till it implants, or you know, it's not viable till certain arbitrary cutoff. So I think that influences a lot of their thinking. Is this the kind of language that your embryology professors used? No, actually, from what I remember, I, I don't remember hearing. We we did bring this up a little bit, but we kind of left it. Didn't really go there uh, in, in the class I took. But we do have an ethics session coming up where I think we go into that a little bit more. Now Georgetown is a Jesuit. Catholic school is the ethics that you're taught in line with Catholic teaching from what I've seen so far it is and from what I've heard uh, it is uh, the ethics department is pretty strong um, we've got a number of good doctors there one coming to mind someone who I see at daily mass a lot dr. dr. Donovan who's uh, heavily involved he's with the Kennedy Center for bioethics yes I've heard very good things about him excellent well thanks for being with us Tom and enjoy the March no oh, thank you thanks for having me so to bring in this idea of embryology, the Washington Post actually published an article on the day of the March for Life dealing with the topic. And they first quote a neurobiology and pediatrics professor from the University of Utah who concludes that, quote, from the moment of conception, embryos are indeed living individuals of the human species. Chris, as an OBGYN, do you agree with that statement? Well, yes. Okay. I mean. <laughs> so they then quote someone who is not Chris, Sarah Horvath, who is an obstetrician-gynecologist like Chris, who says she's a, a performed abortions, is a member of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And she, in the article, disagrees with that scientist's explanation of life by saying, quote, I think that's a gross exaggeration of an incredibly complex topic. There are many fertilized eggs that never implant, that implant in the wrong place, et cetera, et cetera. Chris, what do you think about this? Well, in the interest of keeping our uh, family-approved rating uh, <laughs> what it is, I'll, I'll, practice, I'll practice a little uncommon but much-needed restraint. Um, I mean, it's misfortunate. Life begins when sperm and egg meet. There are two things. There's an egg and there's a sperm. Uh, an instant after they meet, neither of them exist any longer. And a new entity, a third entity that didn't exist before, now exist. That, that's creation. Something was made that didn't exist before, and the sum is greater than the parts, isn't it? Yes. Um, the American College of OBGYN, sadly, in the 60s, came out and said life begins when a fertilized uh, egg implants in the uterus. Now, what we know is that uh, sperm and egg meet in the end of the fallopian tube, and it takes around 10 days or so for it to journey, the embryo to journey down the tube and land in the uterus. And the American College made a statement in the 60s that said that's when life begins. But that just flies in the face of mammalian biology. We don't define a species based on where it is. <laughs> we, we define a species on what it is, not where it is. If something is a fish, it's a fish whether it's in the water or out of the water. It's not a human because it exists in the uterus versus in the tube. And when she says many fertilized eggs don't implant, she's right. We call those losses, and we hope that we'll see them one day in heaven. Um, so she's really a mis 
misguided, confused well, person. And I think you, you bring up a good point about them changing that definition. I mean, I, I don't know if you've found a different example or a different explanation. My understanding is that definition was intentionally changed to allow for the birth control pill and for abortions, knowing that with the birth control pill you get post-ovulation effects, which if they didn't change the definition of being alive would actually be abortions. Right. Uh, absolutely. I have the pleasure of traveling around to a lot of great places giving a talk on the abortion-causing effects uh, of contraception. And you're, you're exactly right. Back when the IUDs were just becoming popular, the American College changed that statement so that they could say IUDs don't cause abortions based on life doesn't begin until uh, it's in the uterus. So that, that's a convenient way to just redefine something so it to get exist. whatever you want. Exactly. And one final comment that this Sora Horvath made was that medical professionals don't have a working definition of when life begins because science isn't really designed to answer questions like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. Who but, signs the death certificates? I know I have to sign some, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, so you, you do talk about when life ends. Yeah. Uh, and so, birth certificates, too, to be fair. Yes. Now, uh, from the era of Roe v. Wade, a, an embryology text from 1974 says that, quote, in that fraction of a second when the chromosomes form pairs, the sex of the new child is determined, hereditary characteristics received from each parent will be set, and a new life will have begun. And it hasn't changed to today in those embryology texts. You know, fertilization happens the same today, it turns out as it did hundreds of thousands of years ago. How, how can we know that? <laughs> it's amazing. Andrea, let's hear again from Eddie Fleming. So here we are. We're actually on Constitution Avenue at the March for Life. And we have here Dr. Eddie Fleming. Eddie, where are you from? I'm from the uh, Pennsylvania area, Allentown, Bethlehem area. And uh, how many times have you been to the March for Life? Well, I think this is about my uh, seventh time. That, that is incredible. And, and what kind of medicine do you do there in uh, the Allentown area? I do uh, family medicine. I, I work, uh, I do some urgent care work, but also work at a, actually uh, just across the border in, uh, in New Jersey at a little family, uh, private-owned family medicine practice called Fa uh, Morningstar Family Health Center. So what do you think when you hear that people say that abortion is health care? What goes through your mind? Well, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's quite the opposite of health care. Um, perhaps trite to say, but nonetheless very true. Have you had any experiences with patients where you had a meaningful conversation with them about abortion? You know, when I, it's, it's, it's interesting. When I work at urgent care, um, you get people of all kinds. And uh, I think the, the most meaningful thing that I get to speak about is even just oral contraceptives and telling them, telling women that, you know, a lot of times they work not by preventing ovulation, but actually by preventing implantation of that, that newly formed conceptus or uh, embryo or pre-embryo, whatever term you want to use. Baby. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's what I end up, uh, I, after I define it, I end up you defaulting to that to push home the point. But uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how many don't know that that's how it works. And they, and they are, um, some are aghast, some don't care, but at least they all know after getting to speak with them about that. He just made, again, Chris's point uh, elegantly well. And I'd like to go into the last clip that we have. You are going to hear some American physicians try to speak in French. And you are the head of? Head of uh, March for Life in France. How big is the March for Life in France? Uh, around uh, 15,000 people. And do you do this in Paris? Yes, in Paris. It will take place on, on, on Sunday. It will be on Sunday in Paris. How many um, years have you been doing this? How many years? Yes. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's like around the more than 20 years ago that we... we well, God bless you. Vive la France. Thank you so much. <laughs> so there were some of us doctors with the Catholic Medical Association banner in our white jackets, and this guy found us and did uh, a short video on his smartphone that he's going to use on their website. And actually, the March for Life in France, I found out on their website, it's been going on since 2005. They have 55, 000 people, and it is the largest pro-life march in Europe. Man, that's amazing. Well, Tom, you got some good interviews while you were out there. Oh, that was fun, and I, I hope to do it in the future and uh, get some even better interviews. I want to get some of the, the young students in there, too.
Yeah, we've heard some great people, some uh, some great enthusiasm. Uh, there, there's some sadness with some of the media things that we talked about and some of the rather preposterous positions that some of our colleagues take on the issue. But I think we have to finish at the end of the day and say there's a lot of hope. There's hundreds of thousands of young people that are marching on the nation's capital in favor of protecting those who can't protect themselves. And that's got to be worth celebrating. Uh, uh, do any of you guys know how many people marched the following day, the so-called Women's March? I don't. It didn't get the coverage this year that it got. Last year uh, it got more coverage. Last year it got a great deal of coverage, and and the numbers were very inflated. Yeah. Um, but I didn't get a chance to sort of track that this time. No, but they kept everything set up for the march the following day, but I wasn't there to, to see it. And I don't think there was much overlap between the two marches, even though you would think a woman's march would have a lot of women who are mothers and pro-life. Well, thank you for being with us for this special triple play episode with uh, Chris, Andrew, and me in studio. Uh, We are Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want more information on the CMA and what it does, you can go to our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And be sure to show up on time. Don't be late for your next appointment with Dr. Doctor where we'll be discussing a Catholic approach to depression with psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Cariotti. So this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.